everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for episode number 30. This is the first episode that I've had a guest on twice. This is the second interview with my friend and colleague and just all-around amazing person, New York Times best-selling author Jim Davidson. And I think you're going to love the podcast. I, again, one of those things, obviously, it's a joy for me to interview my friends and people that I know really well. But just listening to him uh, gave me chills multiple times. His story is amazing. I won't give it all away, but a quick preview is he was on Mount Everest on the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest when a massive earthquake hit the mountain. And then he went back two years later and summited. Uh, it just the, the story he tells is just incredible. So the other joy of it, of having him on for the second time, is his brand new book called The Next Everest, just dropped and came out and is available for purchase now, dropped yesterday. So as we celebrated Earth Day in this absolutely beautiful day here in southern New England with temperatures in the mid-70s, Jim's book came out. It's gotten unbelievable reviews already. And uh, you can purchase it on Amazon, on anywhere you want, any bookstore. It's called The Next Everest. And I'm telling you, you're just going to love this episode. Um, again, I I'm, I'm also want to acknowledge that I'm very grateful that this is episode number 30, just with each passing monument mo moment, meaning, you know, every five or every 10 episodes. Um, it just, I can't tell you how exciting this has been. Um, it's been such a blast to be able to do this podcast and I hope you're enjoying it. And, you know, if you're a weather fan, there's definitely some weather for you. Um, I don't know if I'm fully hitting the obsessed with the weather <laughs> name of the podcast, but there's definitely lots of weather involved and some amazing human interest story like today's episode. So episode number 30, Jim Davidson. I hope you really enjoy it and uh, just have so much fun listening to him. He is amazing. Everywhere he goes, people want to know what's the weather, so he tells them. He's obsessed with the weather, any type of weather, he's obsessed. Hi, and welcome to the Obsessed with the Weather podcast. Welcome to episode number 30. I'm your host, Steve McGuire. This podcast is coming to you from the home of some of the world's most diverse weather, Situate, Massachusetts. A reminder to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to your podcasts on, and give us that five-star rating. Anything, any good positive rating helps. Also visit obsessedwiththeweather.com to find out more about today's episode and other information about the weather. As I said, I have a just awesome episode for you today as I welcome New York Times bestselling author and my friend and mountaineering adventurer, Jim Davidson, to the podcast. But first, as always... Let us begin with our quiz question, and our quiz question is simple. We're talking about Mount Everest today and Jim's hiking of Mount Everest, and the question is simply this. As of today, as of the drop of this podcast, April 21st, 2021, what is the actual height of Mount Everest? So what is the height of Mount Everest is our question for today. All right. Great. So, yeah, so let's set the stage. Um how many times have you been to Nepal and to Mount Everest? I've been to Nepal five times, and the last two times were both to Mount Everest. Okay. And um, so, you know, one of the things that I've found just about, for whatever, like, stuff that I've read and looked at in the past and, um, you know, kind of processed about the time of year, what time of year do people climb Everest uh, the most? And does it, you know, how is it connected to seasonness, the seasons in general? Yeah, most of the climbing now happens in the springtime, starting around April 1st through about May 30th. And really, that's about 95% of the climbing these days. In the past, people used to climb in the fall some, um, thinking it's kind of a shoulder season like the spring. But what happens is as the fall goes on, winter comes in, days get colder, days get shorter, especially when you're up high. So fall is kind of a poor second choice. Summer, you can't climb there because it's a monsoon, so they get huge amounts of snow. And then winter is pretty nasty. A few people have tried it in the winter, but not too many. Right. I'm sure. The the um And so 
I, I often like I try to teach my oceanography kids this when we do a little bit of geology stuff. Mm-hmm. This, this is because of the client, the, the uh, you know, making the acclimatization to, um, to high altitude. People and a lot of people don't know this. If you don't climb, you'd never know this. This is a this is a month, multiple month long process. It's not like you show up, you climb it, you go home. Like I, I, <laughs> I don't think anyone really thinks that like individual about it, but it's a process. Can you take us a little bit through that, like the process of doing it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nepal is on the opposite side of the globe from Situate, so you got to fly halfway around the world. It takes a few days, a few days through Kathmandu. Then you spend about 10 days trekking very slowly up the valley to base camp. And so finally, after 14 days after you leave home, maybe a little more, you're at base camp. But you still have six full weeks to go. So we climb lower peaks of by lower, I mean 18, 20, 22,000 feet. We climb several of those, and now we start to climb Mount Everest. And even if you've done all that, nobody on the planet is strong enough to get to the base and go to the top in one push. Right. We have to go up and down the mountain to do the acclimatization that you talked about. Yep. To go up where the air is thinner, barometric pressure is lower, force yourself to grow more red blood cells, and rest up and come back up and do it again. So as a result, we really climb Everest about twice because we go up and down, up and down, up and down on the lower shoulders, uh, what we call rotations. Uh-huh. And you do all that for about six weeks. And finally, around May 15th or so, you're ready to try for the summit. Amazing. And you talked a little bit about kind of your red blood cells, but and that's helping you, I guess, for lack of a better term, the way I want to phrase it, is that you're expanding the envelope a little bit. Does that make sense with your lungs and with your body each time? Or- yeah, they yeah, they talk about, like, think about your, your heart and your blood as, as a train, and your heart is the strong engine. How hard can the engine push? And each little red blood cell is a small little train car carrying oxygen out to your muscles. Okay. So by going up high and suffering low oxygen, your body goes, what the heck? I don't have enough train cars to move enough oxygen. Grow some more red blood cells. And it takes a couple of days for that to happen. Wow. So we go up high and intentionally stress ourselves with low oxygen. And it feels terrible. You can hardly <laughs> eat. You can hardly sleep. And you go back down. And you go, oh, thank goodness. And then your body grows more red blood cells. And so the next time you come up, you've got more red blood cells, more train cars to move the oxygen, and it doesn't hurt as bad. So that's why we go up and down the mountain. And as a measure of that, at sea level, your um, your uh, oxygen saturation or partial partial SpO two, your partial saturation, is probably about 95 to 98 percent if you're a healthy person at sea yep, level. Yep. If you go to the hospital and you're at 90, they'll put you on oxygen. If you go to the local hospital and you're at 80 percent, they'll call the heart surgeon because they think you're having a, a major, major failure. Wow. Well, we spend about six weeks and we are anywhere from 60 to 80 percent nonstop for about six weeks. That's unbelievable. And, and yeah. you know, like, so when you when you have no assisted oxygen, your heart's just cranking. Right. Like, I mean, you do, you just, that's, you know, obviously there's, there's a, a giant weather component that to do, but, but even the science teacher in me loves to, so I have a Fitbit and again, we're not, Mm -hmm. we're not advertising. We're certainly not advertising (laughs) for anything here, but I have a Fitbit that, you know, keeps my sleep tracker. It does amazing stuff with the heart rate, et cetera. Did you have anything like that would have been amazing to have that data. Did you, do you have anything like that? There were some, but they, they take battery power and it takes time to fiddle with them. I trained with one here okay. um, to work on my VO2 max, so it's yeah. the maximum volume of oxygen you can move. So I trained with one here, but I weaned myself off it before I went to the mountain because I didn't want to mess with too much electronics. Um, so I learned how to feel it in my body, what's the right heart rate, what's the, what's the right you know, uh, breathing rate. Um, so I didn't measure it up high. There are some people doing that this year, so it'll be interesting to see what they find out. Oh, wow. But here's one measure for you. When I'm down here in Col- well, I'm up here in Colorado. It's about five thousand feet. Yeah. But um, my resting heart rate when I'm in good climbing shape is usually forty or a little bit lower. And when I was at base camp and climbing on the mountain, um, often my heart, my resting heart rate would be one hundred and twenty. It's unbelievable. So, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's kind of like the rate you might have for like a long, slow run on a Sunday. So it's like all the time up there, you're like kind of at a mild running pace. And it was triple what my resting heart rate was at home. Oh, it's just unreal. It's unreal. Um, so take us through. All right, so obviously you're there for you know a long time. What's the general, other than the summit piece, what's the general day-to-day weather like in the spring during the climbing season? Yeah, when we get there around April 1st, it's still definitely snowing. 
Um, you know, the days can be kind of sunny and you might be down to one layer uh, of pants and two layers on top. But the time of the day means everything because the air is so thin that when the sun goes down, it gets cold really fast. Interesting. So you might be running around at noontime with one pair of pants on and two tops, long sleeve tops. But when the sun starts to sink about 4.30, it sets very early because it goes behind these really tall mountains. Right. Um, the temperature will start plummeting. And by 7 o'clock, you need two or three layers of pants and maybe down pants. And up top, you'll be wearing maybe three or four layers and a giant down coat that's like three inches thick. Awesome. And at nighttime, it gets well below zero. And it's extra chilled because you're sleeping laying on a, a glacier that's half rock and half ice. <laughs> so at nighttime, maybe it's um, minus 10, and during the day, it might get into be 50 degrees. Then we, when we go higher, that all gets intensified. And uh, on the summit day, it might be, or summit night usually, it might be minus 20 or minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Unbelievable. Um, and I, I understand, too, I guess there's, there's now weather stations on Everest. Is that correct? Yes, there have been several over the years scattered up and down the lower Kumbu Valley below 17,000 feet. Um, but a couple of years ago, I think it was 2019, a team went over there and they put in four or five weather stations at various elevations on the mountain. The highest one they got in was at 27,000, about 600 feet, like wow. uh, 8,300 meters. That station, not surprisingly, the battery didn't last too long. Right. But some of the lower stations are still working. So you can go online, look up you know, Mount Everest weather stations. And you can get, uh, you know, you get wind speed and temperature, all the weather station readings um, at a number of different elevations on the mountain. And it's oh, fascinating. That's so cool. Yeah, I'll definitely, when I, like I did with our, our first episode, I'll add some links to some of those when I find them, which is really cool. So, you know, obviously the big premise, and I appreciate you being a, a person of your word. You know, you said, hey, let's let's do a second. You're, the, you're my first repeat um, guest on the podcast, which is awesome. And you hey. said- Right. There you go. And you said, you know, once my book comes out, let's, you know, let's do another podcast. So, you know, I'm holding the book right now. It is just, you know, I got it in the mail last week and I, I laughed because I, first of all, was like, what my wife was like, what else did you order? Because <laughs> I tend to have a, I had tend to have an Amazon um, addiction. And I said, I don't, I don't think I remember this one. And so I opened it up. And my first reaction when I physically saw the actual book itself was, this is unbelievable. And then this, my, my sort of ADD brain goes to the page count. And I was just like, this is incredible. I can't believe, you know, it's obvious the time, effort, and energy that went into it. And the pictures are incredible. You know, I, I just, I just feel like you don't, you don't really see a book like this anymore, you know, like, um, so, so before we get into like the real details of all the book and everything else, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, how do you feel about this amazing book coming out? I mean, it dropped yesterday. It's, it's out and it's available for sale now. Um, you know, how do you feel about it? Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's called the Next Everest, and it shares the story of the two Everest expeditions we'll be talking about today and some of the occurrences. Uh, I, you know, I'm thrilled, but also tired because it took three long years to pull the book together, about two years of writing, about uh, six months of revision, and then, you know, another six months of production, and it's finally out. It just came out on April 20th. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about it because, obviously, I put a lot of effort into this, but so did the production team at St. Martin's. Like you said, it's, you know, of course, I'm biased here. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's beautiful because it's my baby. Right. But, the, you know, the production team did a really good job. They've got great photos, and they did a, a what they call an end paper, which is a two-page a color on the front and the back that shows how the avalanches came down and we'll get into all that. But so anyways, they put a lot of work into it. We try to make it something that's kind of a little bit of a reference text, a little bit of, you know, kind of marking this important event that happened on Mount Everest. Right. Uh, So take us to that, you know, obviously it was a tragic day. There's no joy in any of this, but, you know, from this and, you know, your kind of theme and your speaking life and, you know, and a lot of the work that you do is resilience. Um, So can you take us through the day? Uh, in April in 2015, you know, you're there when the earthquake, earthquake hit, you know, take us through it. What happened? Um, you know, when did it happen? Every, just take us through where you were and everything surrounding the event. You bet, Steve. So it's April 25th, 2015. I've been a climber for 33 years, trained for a whole year. Uh, I'm nervous but excited. So we leave base camp at 17,000 feet. 
we climbed through the night up the Kumbu Icefall, which is the most dangerous spot on the mountain, because the Kumbu Glacier basically goes over a cliff beneath the ice, and this whole river of ice just tumbles down this cliff face, and it loses 2,000 feet in about a mile, and it's all these jumbled ice blocks from the size of a refrigerator up to the size of the you know, John Hancock building, wow. and they're all moving downhill at about three or four feet per day on average. So you thread your way through this ice fall at night when it's most cold, and hopefully the ice blocks are not moving or falling over. We finally make it to Camp One at 19,700 feet, and it was the scariest place I've ever been in the mountains down in that ice fall. So we're happy to be there. We get to 19,700 feet. We take a little nap because we climb most of the night, and about 11.56 in the morning, Nepal time, on April 25th, I hear a noise come off one of the slopes next to us, and this slope is 4,000 vertical feet tall. Um, and the, it's a rumbling noise. And my tent mate's half asleep. And he goes, avalanche. And I go, yeah, I think so. And we were blase about it because we hear them several times a day, every day on Everest. And did this one and sound any different? Not at first, okay. but all of a sudden it started getting louder and the rumbling's coming closer. And my tent mate Bart goes, wow, that one sounds close. And before I could comment, a separate avalanche started on the opposite side of the valley. This one had a huge boom and it started coming down. And I thought to myself, two avalanches at the same time, something's not right. Uh, how can we be having two of them? And that wall on that side is 6,000 vertical feet. So Bart goes, what's going on? And I go, grab your avalanche beacon and get out of the tent, because we don't want to be in that tent when the avalanche hits us. So the tent will act like a, like a sea anchor and drag us under. Right. So Bart starts scrambling for the door. I reach for the zipper to let him out. And all of a sudden, the tent shot up into the air, 6 to 12 inches, hovered for about two seconds, and dropped back down. It shot back up into the air again, hovered for two seconds, and dropped back down. And I'm a geologist, and I was thinking, how can we have two avalanches and the ground's moving? And then I got it. Earthquake. A huge earthquake. Uh, 7.8 magnitude, biggest earthquake in Nepal in 81 years. Wow. And, and, and that's, and, that's and, how it started. So um, I, I'm going to assume that that you know that rise up and fall down, That will those were the S waves. Like those were the actual waves of the yes. of the earthquake is that correct i think so yeah the they say that the the primary waves the p waves are uh, much faster and okay. they're hard to feel but the secondary waves do more damage because they they move the ground more so that's my guess as well steve i i haven't looked at the timing of it but based on their speed and the way they move the glacier yeah those s waves and the, the kumbu glacier in there can be up to a thousand feet thick so it was lifting a thousand foot column of ice up that height and picking up our tent on top of that column of ice that's just unbelievable um so, you know, it's, you know, we were talking a little bit about, sadly, there were people killed. Um, yep. You know, can you talk about that whole, just where they were, where you were in reference to the whole event and everything that went along with that? Yeah. So we were at Camp One at 19,700 feet. We heard the avalanches come towards us. The wind whipped around and the wind was not from the weather. It was from the avalanches coming straight for us. They're so big that they were bulldozing the air sideways out of the way. Wow. So we had this huge uh, ice particle cloud just settle on camp. The winds went to the north, to the south, to the east and west. Rapid, rapid changes as these two airwaves collided right about in the middle of the glacier where we were. So our tent would lean one way and then shudder the other. This went on for a full three minutes. I had my GoPro running. And the quake itself lasted, I don't know, something like 75 or 90 seconds, something like that. But the winds ripped around for three minutes. When it all settled down, nobody in Camp 1 was hurt or killed. Amazing. Wow. All our teammates at Camp 2, they had felt it and heard it. They had had different avalanches. Nobody hurt or killed there either. Amazing. And then that's when we called base camp, about 2,000 feet below us. And we found out that they had had an avalanche too, a different one. Our avalanche had been mostly pulverized ice and wind. Their avalanche had been rocks, oh. lots and lots of rocks. And what happened was a ridge behind camp had let go with a huge ice ridge called a cornice. That cornice let go, a big serac chunk came down. It went down 3,000 vertical feet, and when it hit the valley floor, it exploded and drove itself sideways. And later on, I figured out with the maps, it went over two kilometers sideways and ran into the middle of base camp. And when it ran in the middle of base camp, everybody was saying the winds were hurricane force or higher. Ugh. Some people said 100 miles an hour. It's hard to know. But it carried rocks from the size of your fist up to microwaves, and it blew them through camp at 50 or 100 miles an hour, picked up dozens of tents and people, and threw it all downwind, about a quarter of a mile downwind. And that, sadly, what resulted in 18 instantaneous deaths 
right in base camp, and that became the deadliest day ever on Everest. Oh, just so sad. And uh, so that yeah. it, it so that whole part of this now it ended up trapping you at Camp One, right? Is that correct? Yes, because our route back to the ice ball consisted of. Um, ladders spreading across laterally across crevasses and ropes and the whole ice ball had been jumbled and partially buried by avalanches so we were cut off at camp one and we could not get back down to base camp to help the uh all the wounded down there, there was 70 wounded along with 18 dead so we were pinned to camp one for two days and they used some helicopters to fly some of those or almost all of those 70 wounded out of base camp over two days and finally when things calmed down a little bit from the initial emergency those helicopters came up and flew us all out of Camp 1 and Camp 2, two by two at a time, and they made something like 80 or 90 flights with helicopters to get us all out of Camp 1 and back to base camp. Unbelievable. So you, I, I, there is a picture of you in, I mean, the pictures, by the way, as we talked about in the book, the pictures are incredible. It, it's a, I kind of, I, I call it a little bit, it's, it's very old school in the fact that you have those amazing color pictures right in the middle of the book tell the you know a lot of the story and one of the pictures is you in the helicopter and it it obviously you're emotionally spent but the helicopter piece seemed kind of harrowing can you talk about that yeah it was uh, among the scariest two minutes of my life uh so these helicopters can normally carry a total of five or six people i forget which but um but that's at sea level at high altitude uh, the air gets thinner. As a reference point, the barometric pressure is about half that at sea level at 18,000 feet. So we're at 19.7, so it's, you know, 45% the air pressure. So the air is thin. The blades don't have as much bite when they spin against that thin air. Wow. So at that altitude, the helicopter can only carry three people, the pilot and two passengers. So they fly these helicopters up, and we're on a glacier. We stomped out a little platform for the helicopter to land on the snow between two giant crevasses. <laughs> it lands, and with the idea is to get in the helicopter as fast as possible. The pilot keeps the engine revved up, so it's hot loading of people. And we jump in, and there's no seats, and there's no seat belts. They've been taken out to save, you know, 40 pounds, whatever the seat weighs. Right. We're that close to the performance margin for the helicopter. Jump in the helicopter, sit on the floor, and hope for the best. And to save energy, the helicopter rides on its own reflected air off the surface of the glacier. Uh, the ground effect. So it skims across the glacier at about 40 feet off the ground, and you're looking straight down the throats of these crevasses that are 150 feet deep or more. Wow. And there were old crevasses and new crevasses from the glacial collapse, and we're just skimming across the glacier, and he descends over 2,000 feet in something like 90 seconds. Oh, and it man. Was like a, yeah, it was like a scary water park ride. when the, You know, like the log goes oh, over yeah. the steep water. Classic, path. the flume. Yes. The flume. It was like the flume, except for 90 continuous seconds uh, as you're flying over and you're seeing all these crevasses right beneath the helicopter, too. Just unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I know that uh, as you have kind of processed, obviously super sad, um, emotionally, you know, takes its toll on you. You know, you had talked, um, you talk about in your first book, you know, the emotional impact of losing your friend and how much that, you know, kind of sidelined you from climbing. But right. here you go. Now we, you know, we fast forward to um, to 2017 and, you know, you talk about it, you're going to go for it. You're going to do it again. You know, can you talk about all the pieces that just, you know, recharged your battery to say, despite, you know, what I had been through and, and the potential danger, I still want to do this. So can you take us through the entire 2017 expedition. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was a difficult decision to go back. And as you said, I lost a climbing partner and a good friend of mine years before. I shared that story in a book called The Ledge. And although it was terrible to lose my partner over the years, I realized that somehow I had to dust myself off and re-engage with life. I had a career, I had a family. And so it takes a long time to get over traumatic events. There's no magic solutions. But I tried to pull a little strength, even from the bad things that happened, and say, how can I try and be a safer climber? How can I be a better partner, hopefully a, a better citizen and a better family member? So that was kind of the lesson I'd learned from uh, the story I told in the ledge. And it was kind of the same thing here, but at an even bigger level. I mean, 18 people lost their lives in base camp. Across Nepal, it was a disaster. 8,900 people died and tens of thousands of homes and schools were wrecked. So it was pretty traumatic for everyone in the whole darn country, including myself. Right. So I didn't take the decision going back lightly. But I, what I did is I did a lot of work trying to raise money for Nepal's recovery and rebuilding. And I, when I would share the story with people, I'd say, hey, Nepal 
counts on tourists and trekkers and climbers like myself. You know, their whole economy is wrecked. They, we can't forget them. Don't let them think they've been forgotten. So when they get themselves a little rebuilt, go back to Nepal, be a tourist, be a climber. And after I said that at about 10 fundraisers over a couple of months, I thought, shouldn't I walk the talk? Shouldn't I go back and spend my dollars and keep those folks employed? I mean, right. I love the Nepali people and I kind of want to climb again, but I'm scared. Right. So as a geologist, I looked into it. I hoped that there would be less uh, earthquake risk beneath Nepal. In fact, I found out there was more because the way the plates moved and the way the tear in the earth transmitted, it was an incomplete tear. It didn't go all the way across, and it didn't go all the way to the surface. Wow. So now what we have is kind of a piece of continental crust that's hanging by a thread. So that means there's going to be more quakes. They're going to be bigger. And I thought, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to go back and have that happen again. So I, right. I waited a year and watched how Nepal recovered, and they were doing pretty good by 2016. So I decided that, you know, chances of having another earthquake at the same time, very unlikely. I mean, humans think in annual cycles, but the continental crust doesn't. Right. So I decided that it seemed unlikely to happen when I was there. So I started training again. I knew I still wanted to climb the mountain and go back and help Nepal back on its feet. So in 2017, I went back and did it all over again, except I was two years older at this point. I was 54. Right. All right. Awesome. So uh, tell us, you know, you make the, um, you summit, you make it to the top. Um, we're going to talk all about that in just a second, but uh, can you talk a little bit about, in the book, you say that, you know, Camp 1, it's nearly 20,000 feet, and it gets too hot. How is that possible? Tell us a little bit about the kind of the weather side of that. Yeah, it, it's an amazing spot. So at, at Camp 1, 19,700, like you said, and these huge walls between 4,000 feet and 6,000 feet tall vertically are just about, you know, 400 yards away on either side. So the valley is very shaded, and the valley is called the Valley of Silence. Its technical name on the maps is the Western Coombe, which is a Welsh word, and Coombe means a dead-end valley. And it is a dead-end valley. The glacier is about three miles long up there and a half a mile wide. So uh, it's brutally cold at night, like 20 below, but when the sun comes up, it is a big, giant solar reflector. Oh, and wow. And so once the sun comes up, the temperature starts to rise, and literally over the course of 10 minutes, everyone starts stripping layers off. By 10 in the morning, we're down to one layer, and by noontime, if you're not on a climbing day, we are laying in the tents in our underwear, spread out like dogs panting in a, on a summer day, and we take our sleeping bags out and put them on the roof to block the sun from getting on the tent. Inside really? the tent, it's about, it's about 90 degrees inside the tent at noontime. Come on. Camp one. I am not kidding. It is unbearably hot. We take bags of snow and put them on our heads and on our chests to cool down at noontime. And by four o'clock, the sun goes behind the ridge. We start piling on layers. And by bedtime at 6.30 or 7, it's minus 20 and we're wearing five layers of clothing. So how long are you, I know, you, you know, there's multiple times and all told, all together, how long are you in camp one like that? Uh, probably about the course of about four days over the trip. Okay. Um, what happens is eventually we get so acclimatized when we're growing up red blood cells, we skip camp one, we walk right by it and go from base camp all the way to camp two in a single day. And then we stop staying at camp one. Okay. All right. So, so, you know, it's not, it's hot and it's tough, but it's not like it's two weeks of that or anything. No. So no, no, that, that happens about four days, maybe five days, depending upon your schedule. And then we can skip it. And believe me, after you roast in that sun a couple of days, nobody wants to be in that. <laughs> that's so interesting. I, I'm, I'm sure that's a little known fact that people have. Um, so in your book, you say that uh, trash and human waste issues reported by the media are, are not correct. Can you tell us all about that? Sure. Yeah, that was one of the things that I wanted to share when I wrote the next Everest was, you know, I'm an environmental geologist. and I did environmental cleanup across the United States for 20 years. And when I was back after my first Everest trip, I heard a lot of stuff in the media that the mountains covered with trash, the mountains covered with human waste. And I was like, I didn't see that. I mean, there were some ugly spots that need some cleanup. A lot of those are from prior decades before really we had an ethic. Up until the 60s, people just threw their trash maybe in a landfill or maybe in a ditch behind their house. That's how right. humans have done it for thousands of years. And then we got some environmental ethics and some leave no trace ethics about keeping the wilderness clean. But by then there was trash around Everest, but people have been cleaning it up. There've been over 33 or 35 cleanup expeditions by now since 1975. So there's still some messy spots, but the mountain is not covered with trash. And the one that bugged me even more was the mountains covered in human waste. The mountains covered in poo. And people would ask me that when I did my public speaking, sharing these ever <laughs> stories. And, and I'm like, the mountain's covered in poo. Is, isn't it 
possible for a mountain as big as Mount Everest? So I went back to my environmental scientist training. I said, all right, we're going to build a spreadsheet. This is how we do environmental analysis. So I calculated and looked up numbers. How many people have gone to Mount Everest? How many days are they above base camp? How often does someone go poo? How big is that? How much does it weigh? And Steve, I worked up a giant spreadsheet of poop calculations. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. I know. It, and what did you it, find? Maybe the first poop spreadsheet in the world. I, I'm not sure, but I've got mine. So I love it. And what, what was your finding? My finding was that of all the humans that have ever been above base camp, if you add up all their human waste, as if nobody had ever picked up any of it, it would cover one ten thousandth of the mountain if the mountain was a flat spot on the map. Wow. And since the mountain has verticality and wrinkles to it, it, it covers far less than one ten thousandth of the mountain. Yeah, and it's constantly um, now, changing and things are moving. And yeah, I mean, the chances of that actually being a gross thing is so low. Right. Now, there are, there are places, you know, it's worse around camps, but a lot of the mountain, you know, probably 98% of the mountain has never been stepped upon by a human. Right. So we need to keep cleaning up our human waste. We need to keep cleaning up our trash. And we bring the waste down on a lot, on a lot of mountains in the world. And we need to be doing that on Everest as well. But the concept that it's covered with trash or poop, that's just totally wrong. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, all right. So it's summit day. I always am kind of blown away by reading all the different uh, pieces about summiting Everest and uh, you know, for my listeners that, I mean, the chances are, it's just kind of the way the numbers work, that most folks that listen today are never going to do this. But some will, but most people will not. So can you just paint the picture for us from wake up time to you're on top of the tallest peak on the planet Earth? Go for it. You got. Um, so it's about day 59 of the trip in my case. We're camped actually at Camp 3 at uh, 23,000 feet. We go on bottled oxygen for the first time. At that altitude, there's about uh, 60% less oxygen in the air with every lungful you grab. So we go on oxygen, and it's supplemental oxygen. It doesn't make it like sea level. It basically lowers it about, feels like it lowers the elevation about 3,000 feet. We're going incredibly slow, about 400 feet an hour is all we can do vertically. That's about one-fifth of the rate that I can do here in Colorado. Um, you're, going, you're going that slow because you just physically can't go faster. Correct. Even with the supplemental oxygen, oxygen, there's just not enough oxygen to power yourself. So everything has to be done in slow motion. Got it. Even getting dressed. It takes about two hours to get dressed and get outside the tent. Oh, man. So to put on your shoe, it goes like this, Steve. You sit up. And that makes you pant, and you have to rest for about 30 seconds or a minute. Then you grab your boot, then you rest for 30 seconds, pull it on. Now you need to rest for a minute or two. Then you tie it, and then you rest, and then you zip up the outer layer, the gator we call it, and then you rest again. So it takes, you know, six or seven steps to get one boot on. So it takes two hours to get out of the tent. And then you go incredibly slow, and you make it up to Camp 4. And Camp 4 is at 26,000 feet, or 8,000 meters in the metric system. And that's what we call the death zone. And we don't call it the death zone because if we stay, a few people might die. If we stay more than a few days, every single person will die from lack of oxygen, period. Wow. It's just a matter of one day if you're not well acclimatized, maybe two or three days if you're doing pretty well. If you're superhuman, you might last four days up there, uh, but not very likely. Your, your cells can't function. Wow. You don't want to eat, you don't want to drink, and you cannot sleep. So that's why Summit Days actually starts at Camp 3. You go to Camp 4. We rest for a couple hours by laying down. But, you know, cooking and eating a meal takes two or three hours on a little stove. And around 7 o'clock at night, we start getting dressed and go outside about 8 o'clock. And we climb all night long because we want to climb during the darkness and the cold when the glacier and the crevasses are most frozen, least likely to collapse or drop us into a crevasse or avalanche on us. Right. Climb from 8 p.m. till about 3 or 4 a.m. And if things go well, we're on that summit ridge. And it was a long night. Uh, at this point, you've been up for over 24 hours. Um, and I got up to about 28,800 feet. And I looked across the last quarter mile, 200 feet to go. And I thought to myself, I, I think we're going to make it. I mean, wow. I've been doubtful <laughs> the whole time because you're so tired. And at this point, I had lost about 20 pounds. And I thought it was all fat. I thought, hey, this is great. I'm getting skinny. Right. When I got home, I found out I really lost a, a total of 22 pounds, two pounds of fat and 20 pounds of muscle oh. in about six weeks. <laughs> so 
So you're, you're emaciated. You didn't eat much. You didn't sleep any. It's 24 hours on the go. And you get another hour or two to make the summit. So we're moving really slow, maybe 300 feet vertical an hour now, but very slowly in the east. See a little blue streak, a little pink, a little orange. And I'm looking out over the plains of Tibet. And that's the sun starting to come over the horizon. And I realize within the hour, unless I somehow trip over my own two feet or get hit by a meteorite or something, within the hour, I'm going to be standing on top of the world. <laughs> a dream I've been trying to, trying to live for 35 years. Everything went our way. And at about 4.19 in the morning on May 22nd, 2017, I summited just before sunrise with my Sherpa, PK Sherpa. Oh, it was magical. Oh, I'm, and uh, this is the best. I have chills. You did it. You gave me chills in a podcast interview. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> so, and how long are you up there? You know, you've heard things of like long lines of people and, it. you know, how long are you physically on top? I spent 35 years getting ready, 60 days on the mountain. Steve, I was on top a little less than 15 minutes. Wow. But still, that like re- I feel like that's a yeah. long time. Like, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just enough time. I mean, I would have liked to stay longer, but it is so cold. And, you know, you're only halfway up. you got to get back down. And at this point, you're exhausted in every way, physically, mentally. You're dehydrated and everything. Right. So it's just enough time to take a few pictures. And a friend of mine gave me some good advice. He said, you know, you're going to take your pictures and maybe try and contact your your family with a sat phone or a GPS text device, which I I did. Um, But take a minute to soak it all in. And I just kind of sat there and stood there, really, and and looked around. And I thought, it's taken me 35 years to get here. There's so many reasons I might have quit or turned away when I lost my friend or after the quake. And there was no vainglorious celebration at all. I just felt very, very humble and very, very grateful to get there. And, and I realized that I was really lucky to be there. And I just was glad that I didn't give up along the way, that I kept pushing to try and make this happen. Oh, that's so incredible. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess for, is there, a, so you've done this, you're there, it's amazing. You start back down and I, I don't know what the numbers are. I think this is true. This is like just me kind of speculating lots of climbing accidents and I don't mean to laugh, but like lots of climbing accidents or injuries or whatever people say happen. Most of them happen on the way down. Can you talk about is, first of all, is there any truth to that? And second of all, um, is there not that you let your guard down, but is there a sense of like, Oh, okay. With every passing step, I'm getting closer to more oxygen. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you take us through the going down process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a little tricky on the statistics, but you were right across the board. Um, we spend so much more time going up the mountain than going down that the number of accidents on ascent or descent part of the route is more or less the same depending on the mountain. Okay. But you know, you're spending one third or less of the time going downhill. So during those descent hours, those are your most dangerous. Okay. So on, you know, accidents per hour, the descending from the summit of Everest is incredibly dangerous. Wow. Because of what you said. You haven't slept. You've lost 20 pounds of muscle. We don't know exactly, but on summit night, we think we burn about 10,000 to 12,000 calories. It's about the same as four marathons. Steve, I ate somewhere between 500 calories and 1,000. You just have no appetite. You know you need the calories, right. but you just can't get them down your throat. Probably only drank one quart of water in 18 hours, something like that, um, even though you're trying to get water down your throat. So, you know, you're exhausted. And, yes, there is a mental factor of, Yay, I've reached the summit. Right. And people can let their guard down. And I've seen it in others. I've seen it myself. So I try and really caution myself on the top. And what I say, well, I've led a number of expeditions with college students. And I, when we get to the top and everybody's celebrating, everybody celebrates for a bit and we're ready to go down. I go, okay, that was the easy part. Now comes the hard and dangerous part. Good. have got to stay diligent on the way down. Right. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. And you would think that there is. There's definitely, it's just human nature to be you know, celebratory and this is great. And then, you know, to kind of let your guard down, but that's amazing that you take people through that. Um, so what do you really, what do you, you know, if you wish people could understand more about climbing Everest, what would it be? What do you really want people to know about that event? Yeah, good question. Um, I think it's this, that, you know, certainly Everest has climbed more often these days. So it's not as special as it was in 1953 when the first person climbed it. And, uh, you know, there's stories like stories in the media that you don't have to know even know how to climb. You just follow somebody else and you pull yourself up the fixed rope. Yeah, right. 
look at the look at the size of your thigh muscle versus your bicep. How would you want to get up a mountain? You know, right. you can't pull yourself up. You, you've got to do the work for sure. It you know having sharp as long absolutely helps. Oxygen helps. Our new technology helps, and that's all lowered the death rate. But climbing Mount Everest is not easy. I started climbing in New England 39 years ago. At this point, and climbing Mount Everest is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It takes a lot of training, a lot of dedication. Uh, you know, the saying that the climbers are slobs and throw their stuff on the ground. Not the climbers I know. We all follow leave no trace ethics because we're we're nature lovers. We want to be out in this gorgeous natural environment. Right. So it's harder than than media makes it sound. It's not as messy as it seems. But more importantly, it's not about standing on the summit. It's about picking a big challenge and making yourself grow enough, improve enough to take on that challenge. So like you said, a lot of your listeners are not going to climb Mount Everest, but they don't even have to climb any mountain. You can pick a challenge like a marathon or music or meditation. And by picking a big goal, you force yourself to to become something more. And that's the beauty of climbing Everest or running a marathon or playing music. It forces you to become more than you were. And that's the real reward. Awesome. So well said. Now, now, so you've, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of great things. Like from a mountaineering standpoint, Everest is kind of it, for lack of a better term. It's like, you know, I heard a comedian that played uh, Carnegie Hall and was kind of like, well, this is it. Like, what what do I do after this? And so, um, so that's my question to you is, so, you know, wh- what's next? How do you top the top? What's next for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly there are other lower mountains that are much more difficult technically than, than Everest, but without that 60 days to the trip to the summit and all the exhaustion makes Everest very difficult. Right. So it is the highest one for sure. And, it, you know, there's, there are other smaller hard mountains. And uh, as I share in the book, the next Everest, uh, one time someone said to me, well, what are you going to do next? You can't go any higher. Right. Uh, and I thought to myself, I thought about that for a lot. And I realized, well, I'm not going to go any higher, but there's always another challenge another opportunity. Sometimes things you choose like, hey, I want to run my first marathon or learn how to play guitar. And sometimes life thrusts the hard things in your face, economic problems, pandemics like we've all been through. And so there's always another challenge uh, or another opportunity come up. And so really what you have to do is pull out the lessons you can from that last experience, whether it was a good one like summoning the mountain or a bad one like the pandemic, and ask yourself, how can I do better? How can I be a better community member? How can I be more ready for the next challenge? the next opportunity, or as I say in the book, the next Everest. Awesome. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm trying to take those lessons, first of all, share it through the book and through my public speaking, and try and you know, encourage people to pick a challenge, rise up to meet it, because that will make you more resilient, more wise, and more skilled for that next thing that happens, whether it's something good that happens to you, like a great promotion, or another pandemic, or an economic crisis. We've got to be ready. We've got to make ourselves more resilient. Uh, that's so good. Uh, and, and how about the actual, the, the book itself? What What is from going through, you know, you said it was a, a very long process. Obviously, the final product is amazing. W- what's your major takeaway from writing the book? Well, from when I was writing the book, I had to ask myself, you know, this big, long journey of going up and down the mountain and 39 years of mountaineering, what is the key takeaway? Because most people are not going to climb big mountains like that. And the key takeaway really is it's it's, it's the picking of that challenge to force yourself to rise up to the challenge. That's where the magic comes from. And whether that musician ever actually plays Carnegie Hall doesn't really matter. And whether I actually stood on top of Everest or had to stop a thousand feet short, that doesn't matter. Because by going through the process, I became a better version of myself and that musician became a better version of themselves. So playing at Carnegie or standing on Everest, eh, that's kind of the cherry on top. But it's that process of forcing yourself to become more that's the real reward. And so pick that big challenge, make yourself rise up and get yourself ready for the next Everest. That's the short message by the time I got to the end of this book. Oh, that's great. And, and you know, I, I want you to, you know, it's, you're not wired this way. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you the best feedback I got. And I'll tell you what I mean by you're not wired this way. So um, okay. I had a, a friend of mine that listened to your first interview and uh, he's, yeah, I think he's listened to every episode and always is, you know, given feedback and, hey, have you thought about this or why don't you do this this way? And he said to me, which we all need, like we all need those people in our lives, you know. Um, and he said to me, he said, even like in the first 15 seconds, like you can just tell that, meaning talking about you, he said, that guy's just really nice, you know, like so. And I said, <laughs> he is. I said, he's just unbelievable. He's so kind 
and he's just such a nice guy. So when I say you're not wired this way, I want you to like take a second and be wired this way, meaning like don't have any humility about this and tell us about your professional speaking business because this is an opportunity. I can guarantee you I have I have listeners and I'll, I'll sell you for people uh, or I'll sell I'll, I'll, I'll sell you for yourself. Um, but if you're listening to our podcast and you like what Jim has been talking about, you got to reach out to him and have him speak at an event of yours because I've seen him in person and it's amazing. But and you know we really didn't get into much of it. But can you tell us about your business and what it's all about? Go for it. Yeah, thanks for the kind words, Steve, and and to your regular listeners as well. Uh, yeah, so what I do now, I used to be an environmental geologist. Now I'm an inspirational speaker and an author, and I just try and share these stories like we've been talking about today. Uh, my website is speakingofadventure.com, speaking of adventure, and uh, I've got some videos on there of my speaking. I've spoken all across the United States and around the world uh, to big companies and universities and associations, and I just distill these kind of lessons. Sometimes it's about being resilient. Sometimes it's about leadership. Sometimes it's about bouncing back from bad things that happen, you know, surviving storms and bouncing back from pandemics. So they can find out information about my speaking there, and uh, they can find out about the book there too. The next Everest, it's out in hardback and ebook and audiobook, uh, in all your local bookstores and wherever you buy your books. So it's it's out there in those formats as well. So thanks for giving me that opportunity, Steve. Yeah, no, and and I'll definitely, uh, as you know, as folks are listening here too, please know I'll put all of Jim's contact information and where you can buy the book and a link to his website and. You know, my, it's interesting. You'd think that of 400 plus pages, um, you know, I, there's obviously lots of takeaways. I'll share the two biggest that I have. One Great. is in the, you know, the amazing, you, you talked about the the back inside and, and back cover being these, you know, colorful, awesome, beautiful things. Um, your bio, this this should, you know, if you've ever considered hiring somebody or, you know, listening to somebody speak or whatever, a lot of times and being in the business myself, it is a very ego driven business. It just kind of has to be, you know, like you have to have some self-efficacy to know what you're good at. I'm blown away by, you know, everything you've done and the description you have of yourself. It says, Jim Davidson is an accomplished high altitude climber. He's not, it doesn't say, uh, a climbing expert, the world's greatest, like it, like like a lot, but but really, Jim, a lot of people would write that, and you just use the word accomplished, and it's so it's a great word. Don't get me wrong, but it's you know it sells yourself right. short of how of the most amazing <laughs> stuff that you've done. So I thought that was an amazing reflection, and the other thing that you know I love that you know I I shared this with a friend of mine. And that person said, after I read him this little, this one sentence, he said, wow, you could, you could build, you know, you could build a company around that slogan. And it's when your dad was looking up at you and you were at the top of this ladder and you, you know, you looked scared and you were nervous, you might fall. And your dad yelled, focus on the climb, not the drop. Can you talk about how much that's changed your life? Yeah, it, it, I grew up working for my dad and my uncle in Concord, Mass. That's where I'm from. And, and I climbed all these crazy buildings with my dad doing industrial painting. And that moment really has stuck with me literally for over four decades because I was scared and I could sense the space. And I was thinking about the what ifs if I fall. And my dad yelled up the ladder, focus on the climb, not the drop. And I think that's the solution to a lot of problems. Uh, you know, we, we have to be aware of the danger. We have to be aware of the outcome, but focus on the solution be aware of the problems and keep moving up, keep moving forward. That that helped me on the ladder. It helped me reach the summit of Everest. And it's helped me in my life when other challenges have popped up as well. Yeah, it's so cool all, all these years later. Um, so our, our quiz question, which you didn't hear at the beginning, which will be my audience members will hear, is us. And obviously, you're the guy to ask to. I always love to live, let my guests answer it, but you're obviously the person to answer this. So the quiz question, and you can tell our audience, what is the current height of Mount what, Mount Everest? I was about to say I was about to say Mount Washington. It was it was in my DNA. Um, so yeah. what what's the current height of Mount Everest? Ah, you said it well. With the new surveys of 2019 and 2020, in meters, it's 8,848.86 meters. Okay. And when you convert that over to feet, depending on if you round off or, or to the nearest foot, uh, 29,000. 
31 point, I think six feet. Uh, and usually rounded to 29,032 feet. Awesome. Uh, is the new answer. Awesome. And so, you know, like we said, the new answer, tell us about that. Why is that a new answer? Yeah, well, in the book, um, I use the figure of 29,029 feet because that's what it was when I was climbing the mountain in 2015 and 2017. Wow. It's just in this last year that Nepal resurveyed, China resurveyed from both sides of the mountain. They spent over a year integrating their data and they came up with this. And, and, and that's the number they've got 88, 48.86 meters is the answer in the metric system. And that's, I'm glad they came up with a single number between the two of them because if they had two different survey right. numbers that were off, you know, a half a foot, they'd be arguing about that forever and we'd never have a single answer. Yeah. So that, that's the new refined number. It, it's not really a reflection that the mountain has risen up, which it does due to mountain building. That's why Everest is there because right. it's continental collisions. Um, and it's not really a function that the earthquake of 2015 pumped the mountain up two feet. It really is about refined measurements and a whole lot goes into that and a lot of assumptions. I bet if we measure it again in 10 or 20 years, we'll come up with another number that's plus or minus a few feet. Wow. So cool. Um, so Jim, Jim Davidson, the next Everest, everybody. Um, it's a no brainer. Like I, I'm telling you, it's just a phenomenal book and you know, you're, you're going to love it. You're going to get a lot of amazing takeaways from it. And you know, more than anything else, as you've, as you've heard here today from Jim, uh, whatever the challenge is, whatever you're being faced with, like we've all been faced with in the last year, anything is possible. And uh, if you put your mind to it and do the work. So, uh, Jim, awesome. Thank you so much for being with me uh, yet again. Guest number, your second appearance here. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm thrilled to be the, the person to come back a second time. And I want to thank you for having me back a second time and your listeners for hanging with us. It has been absolutely fun and Best of luck to you and your listeners, Steve. All right. Thanks, Jim. Take care. Thank you so much for joining me this week. You can find out more about today's show as well as upcoming episodes by visiting obsessedwiththeweather.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you're listening to your podcasts on. And I hope you have an awesome week. Thanks for joining me.